James chapter 2, as we make our way uh, through this letter, uh, we come to the second chapter, and so I'd like to begin uh, reading there in verse 1 down to verse 9. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word, James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the, law, the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you were doing well. But if you show partiality, you are, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. Or the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth. We ask that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, we have seen how in chapter, James chapter 1, how the Lord uses various trials in our life to perfect our faith in order to create steadfastness. And having steadfastness having its work will make us, at the end of the day, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And God does that work of sanctification in our life, not just so that we might draw closer to him, having a better relationship with the Lord, but as we've seen time and time again already in James' letter, that work of sanctification is also to the end, not, not only that we love God with all of our heart, but that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And if all that work of sanctification does not result in loving our neighbor, then James says we are deceiving ourselves and our religion is worthless. He told us that pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is to care for orphans and widows in their affliction. And if one is doing these things, it's showing that the word of God, the implanted word, has been received into our heart and it is bearing fruits of righteousness. It shows that we are being imitators of God as dear children, since he is a father to the fatherless and a protector of widows. So loving God with all of our heart will result in loving our neighbor as ourselves. And that's James' main point here in chapter 2, as he tells us to show no partiality. This word translated partiality is an interesting word in the Greek. It only appears, as far as we know, in the New Testament, as well as in ancient Christian writings. And perhaps it's a word that came from the Old Testament. It literally means to receive the face. And what partiality looks like is that you treat people differently 
based on their outward appearance. To judge people based upon externals, by what you see with the eye. And that can result in two different things. It either results in showing preference to somebody that you like, or negatively showing discrimination towards somebody that you don't like. Now, clearly, the example that James uses is the different way in which we treat rich people versus poor people. But we show partiality in all sorts of ways. We judge people based upon the color of their skin or their ethnicity or their language, their country of origin, their their sex, their class, their dress. We even judge people by what kind of car they drive. All it takes is one look at a person, and we have already formulated opinions about that person and become judges with evil thoughts. We are to show no partiality. Now, James, as I said, uh, the example of partiality that he uses in our passage today is the difference in the way we treat rich people versus poor people. But I think it would be fitting, in light of all that's going on in our world today, to talk about another type of partiality that's in the news. And of course, that partiality is the sin of racism. Our nation has a history of racism. There is no denying that. But it's common today for people to look at somebody like me, a white male, and to immediately assume you're a racist. You're racist because you are white and because you are a male. And my immediate gut reaction to that is to say, of course I'm not racist. How dare you say that? Well, remember, as Christians, James tells us that we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. And so we ought, as Christians, to always be willing to lend an ear and to hear how we might be racially insensitive or how we might be mistreating other people based upon the color of their skin. I think it's important for us as Christians to be informed about the history of our nation and the historic oppression of especially our black and brown brothers and sisters, as well as their current plight that they are facing. We should be quick to listen to those things. But before we immediately jump to defend ourselves to say, well, we are not racist, we need to realize that racism is merely a symptom of a larger problem called partiality. It is a symptom of the human, the fallen human condition that we are prone to judge people based upon externals. And partiality is pervasive. Partiality doesn't just exist in the far reaches of the internet or in the deep south or in other parts of the world where we say, well, that doesn't affect me. I'm not racist. I don't show partiality. No, partiality comes from within. It's part of our fallen nature. And that's why James tells us we need to constantly be on guard against showing partiality, whether it's preference for people we like or discrimination against people we don't like. We need to be on guard because that is completely contrary to the newness of life we have in Christ. You see, man looks at the outward appearances, but God looks at the heart, and we need to become imitators of God and become more and more like him. Now, the answer that the world has, the the common solution that's being floated about today is that what we need to do in order to achieve uh, racial equality and social justice is we need to turn the tables. 
and to give those who are historically oppressed positions of power so that the oppressed become the oppressors. You see, that's not going to solve the problem either. All you're doing there is trading one type of partiality for another type of partiality. What we need to do is recognize that we have partiality in our hearts, and we need to root that out. And ultimately, what we all desire, racial equality, social justice, peace and harmony and unity, is only achievable through the gospel. That's why we have this beautiful passage today as as James talks about holding the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And if you do that, when you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot show partiality. They do not mix. And so that's why he warns us to avoid any inconsistency as we hold the faith. Now, what does it involve to hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, of course, it's more than just placing your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Of course, it also involves receiving with meekness the implanted word. It involves looking intently at the law of liberty and being reminded of who we are in Christ. The first fruits of the new creation. All those things we we have in our minds and we are doing as we are holding the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can't do that and continue to live and act like the world by judging others and showing partiality. As I've mentioned this before, James only mentions the name of the Lord Jesus Christ twice in his letter. The first time he mentions it is in the opening of the letter where he says he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The other time he mentions the the name of his Lord and older brother is here in our passage. And so whenever you see that, you need to tune in and, and realize the significance of him mentioning this, the, the, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he calls the Lord of glory. Just think about that for a second. He calls him the Lord of glory, reminding us of what Jesus has accomplished for us and where he is now after his resurrection. He has taken our humanity to the next level. He has taken our flesh into heaven where it is robed in glorious splendor through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he, as a man, is the Lord of glory sitting at the right hand of the Father. Now just think about that. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, as James now goes on to describe this rich man stepping into church with his fancy ring and his fancy clothing. What a contrast. True glory with false glory. Two men walk into a synagogue. It sounds like a joke, but ultimately, this is what James is telling us here. The word he uses for assembly is literally translated as synagogue. It means a a meeting place, an assembly, in much the same way that the word church means an assembly. But two men walk into a synagogue. This seemingly comedic example is clearly hypothetical. James is giving this this case, a test case, by which he might judge the church. How are you going to treat these two different men who walk into your assembly today? But although this is clearly a hypothetical situation, something like this must have been happening for James to bring it up in his letter. As he says in verse 6, you have dishonored 
the poor man. And so this was a tendency of James's audience, as well as us, since we are of like nature, to show preference to rich people, to show preference to those whom we like or those whom we think we can benefit from, as opposed to those who we'd rather have nothing to do with because we can't see any obvious benefit from them. Well, the first man comes in. And it's interesting that James doesn't even have to tell us he is a rich man. He doesn't use the word rich man. He just describes him. He's got a gold ring. He's got fine clothing. We don't have to be told he's rich. He is communicating that by his dress. And clearly the church picks up on that. Well, in contrast to the rich man, we have the poor man. This other visitor dressed in shabby clothing. This, this word uh, describing his clothing is related to the word used in chapter 1 where James says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. It, it, it describes a guy whose clothes are just falling apart because he can't afford any more. Now, in our day and age, clothing is so abundant. Actually, that's a greater sin for us is that we buy so much clothing. You, you buy a t-shirt for five bucks, you wear it one time, and then what do you do? You let it sit in your closet for a, a couple of years, and then you give it away, right? Uh, clothing today is in abundance, what with fast fashion and, and cheap manufacturing. In the ancient world, only the very wealthy would have a second pair of clothes. That's why the, when, when our Lord Jesus Christ, if somebody says on the Sermon on the Mount, if somebody wants to take your cloak, let them have your tunic also, that was radical, because you would be literally giving them the shirt off your back. And so this man walking into the church isn't uh, uh, being irresponsible. You know, we're told, boys and girls, that you're supposed to kind of dress up when you go to church, right? And we have the privilege of doing that because we have a bunch of clothes. This man had nothing. He was wearing all he had, and he couldn't afford to buy clothes. And so he came with what he had, and yet people judged him based upon his clothes. Judging. By appearance, these two visitors couldn't be more polar opposite. One man wearing rich clothing, all blinged out, and the other man wearing all that he had. Well, even though their appearances polar opposite, sadly, the same response, the same is with the response the church has. Now, keep in mind, as, as James describes the reactions that they have towards these two men, keep in mind that the majority of James's audience were poor themselves. Not all of them. There were some people who were wealthy, who were of means. But for the vast majority of his audience, they were poor themselves. And so it is even more hypocritical for them to treat this poor man with disdain. They say to the rich man, you sit here in a good place. We know that the synagogues of Jesus' day would have seats of honor. This is where the Pharisees liked to sit so that everyone could look at them and that they could uh, see how godly and pious they are. Presumably, there were better seats than others, uh, even in the assemblies of James's audience. And that's the seat that they want to give to the rich man. Now, if if James's audience, for the most part, were poor themselves, why on earth would they pander to such a person? Why would they be stumbling over themselves to earn this guy's favor? Why else would we do something like that? Because of what we can get from him. Whether it's prestige to be able to say, oh, you know who goes to our church? Or, or uh, to be able to get money, property, 
This is all part of what, the, what was pervasive in the ancient world, the system of patronage, where everyone all the way up to the emperor had somebody that they sucked up to in order to get something from them. There's this interesting story in Luke chapter 7 where we read of this Roman centurion whose child is sick near to death. And the Jewish elders go to the Lord Jesus and they plead on his behalf. They plead with Jesus earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built our synagogue. So we see here an example of a, of a wealthy person of means giving money in order for the Jews to be able to have a synagogue. He's the one who built it. Maybe his, his name was, was on the front of it. Now, of course, this Roman centurion is extolled as a man of faith in Luke chapter 7. And presumably, he donated money and, and built the synagogue with good motives. But the obvious pandering that we see in James's example is completely unacceptable. Jesus told us that when you give in secret to not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And, and he warns us against practicing our righteousness before others in hopes that we might get an earthly reward. On the other hand, the church is responsible for never sending a message to wealthy people that they can expect special treatment if they give money to the church. Sometimes I've gone to churches and I see the, the craziest thing. You sit in a pew and what do you see? You see people's names on the pews. Or even worse, when you walk in, you see somebody's name named after the building. I don't know how on earth you can read James chapter 2 and do something like that, let alone segregate churches the way they did in our nation's history. Well, that's the way that they treat this rich man in hopes that they can get something from him. But the other man, who comes in filthy clothes, without any obvious financial or social means to benefit the church, This poor man is relegated to the back of the room or to the lowest seat in the house. You sit at my footstool. You go stand over there. We don't need you. You know, they, they might say, well, we didn't kick him out. But what do they do? They ostracize him. They say, we don't need you at all. Well, in verse four, James confronts them and says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts. To ask the question is to answer it. Yes, this is precisely what they have done. They've made distinctions. They've discriminated. They've been judges with evil thoughts. They have judged based upon externals, based upon appearances. They have shown partiality. They have allowed the ways of the world to creep into the body of Christ, and James tells us all, Such discrimination is purely evil. And so then he reasons with his audience in verse 5. He goes, listen, my beloved brothers. Notice here that he's still addressing them as fellow believers. He appeals to them as those who are holding the faith in Lord Jesus Christ. He just wants them to do it consistently. And he has two main arguments that he makes here. First argument, he says, is that their actions towards this poor man are contrary to the way in which God treats the poor. And second of all, he makes the argument that their 
deference towards the rich man is ultimately self-defeating. And so first of all, seeing how it is that God ordinarily treats the poor, we see in verse 5, based upon how God ordinarily works, we see that God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. You look at the church today, around the world, or even throughout history, and you see that the vast majority of those who are called into the Christian communion are those who are of lower means. Poor people, not the rich, not the famous. This was true of James's audience. It was true of Paul's audience as he wrote to the Corinthians. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no flesh might boast in the presence of God. It's important to note that there's nothing particularly pious about being poor. Poor people are just as sinful and depraved as rich people. They deal with different sins, sins and temptations, but it's not as if God is drawn to the poor because they are more godly or more deserving of his salvation. No. Nor is James saying that all poor people are saved. It's only the poor that are rich in faith that ultimately uh, share in the benefits of Christ. But Paul, I think, explains for us why it is that God is pleased to call, for the most part, those who are low and despised in the world is because they know that they are a nobody, that they have nothing to offer to God. And knowing that if you are a nobody in the world prevents us from boasting in the presence of God. That's why Paul says, so that no flesh, no human being might boast in the presence of God. If you have billions and billions of dollars, if you have a lot of power, if you have a lot of clout, and you get called to faith, you may be tempted to think, well, of course God called me. He needs me. Pat yourself on the back. No, that is not how it works. No one can boast in the presence of God. No one can bring anything to the foot of the cross. And that's why it is that God has often been pleased to choose the poor to be rich in faith. And that's why uh, ultimately James, as we've already seen in chapter one, he says that the rich should boast in their humiliation. The humiliation that they have in Christ, knowing that their earthly riches are temporary. That God doesn't need any of that. And that they bring nothing to the foot of the cross. Well, the poor, as James tells us, are rich in faith. This is the exaltation that James alluded to back in chapter 1. That the poor man can boast about. The lowly man can, can rejoice in the fact that they are united to Christ by faith and co-heirs together with him. They are united to the Lord of glory who rules the universe. And so that really puts things into perspective as you look at the rich and powerful and famous people around, to, around you today. That's nothing compared to the glory that the Lord Jesus Christ has entered into and the glory that we share with him, sharing in his riches as we are united to him by faith. But in stark contrast to the way in which God treats the poor, 
we see that James's audience have dishonored the poor man. You note the contrast. God has promised to give the kingdom of his son to the poor and lowly of this world. Those for whom Christ died, they are dishonoring. We ought to treat them in the same manner that God treats them. Well then, next we see James make another argument. The way in which they are showing deference to the rich ultimately is self-defeating. And he proves that with a series of questions. Are not the rich those who oppress you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are dishonoring the honorable name by which you are being called? You see, all of these efforts to to earn the favor of the rich and the powerful are self-defeating because the way of the cross does not mix with the ways of the world. That's how the world works. You get the rich and powerful on your side so that you get something in return. But that is not how the church works. That is not the way in which Christ has called us to take up his, uh, our cross and follow after him. We can't mix the ways of the world that is consumed with wealth and power, often at other people's expense. That's what the rich were doing as they were oppressing people, as they were dragging them into court. They were hoping to be able to uh, you know, exploit them and take advantage of them, to steal their land and all the rest. Those things just don't work in the, in, in the church. It's how the, word, the world works. And being poor themselves, James's audience knew this firsthand. They themselves had been oppressed. And so what is the solution? Get rich and, pe- rich and powerful people on your side? No. Take up your cross and follow after the Lord. Well, not only were these rich and powerful people oppressing James's audience, dishonoring them, but they were blaspheming the honorable name by which they had been called. You see, in oppressing Christians, the rich were also defaming the name of Christ that had been placed on them, literally called over them in their baptisms. See, boys and girls, when we are baptized, as we recently saw baby Kinsley baptized, we know that Jesus puts his name and claim on us. He owns us in our baptism. His name is placed on top of us. And when people mistreat us because of the fact that we are Christians, they are also mistreating the Lord Jesus Christ, whose name is placed on us. We know that from the book of Acts. Saul of Tarsus was persecuting the church. And yet when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why would Jesus say that? He wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting his followers. Ultimately, because his name was placed upon them, his name had been called over them in their baptism, he was persecuting the Lord. And the same goes anytime any Christian is persecuted for their faith, the name of Christ is dragged through the mud. Jesus places his name and claim on us, all for whom he died. And when we are dishonored and mistreated, he is too. And he takes that personally. So that's why James just wants to impress upon his readers. Don't show partiality. 
Don't judge people based upon externals. Don't mistreat people because you think you are better than them. Because ultimately, you are dishonoring somebody who is united to the Lord of glory. That's what it means to hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only knowing our identity, but knowing the identity of others around us and treating them accordingly. So how ought we to treat other people? Treat other people the way that you want to be treated. Simple as that. Jesus says, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. James tells us to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so do you like it when you walk into a room and people look you up and down and immediately judge you based upon the way you look or the color of your skin or or whatever, any externals? Well, no, none of us like that. And so let us constantly be on guard against showing that sin of partiality, letting that, 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 that na- the, the part of our sinful nature creep up and influence the way we do things in the church. By showing partiality like the world, James says we are committing sin and we are violating the law of liberty. The thing for which Christ set us free so that we might be new creatures, so that we might act differently from the world, So that the church might be a place that people look to and say, there is an example of racial harmony. There is an example of people getting along with each other, although they are of various socioeconomic statuses or uh, uh, places of origin. The church should be that bastion of light showing forth those things. So as we look intently at the law of liberty today, And as we hold for our faith in the Lord of glory, may we never forget who we are in him. May we not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of our minds. And may we show forth that new creation that Christ has earned for us as we are his first fruits. Amen. Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you show no partiality. And if you treated us as our sins deserved, we would all deserve eternal punishment in hell. But you bore that punishment for us. You removed the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You who were rich became poor so that we, through your poverty, might become rich in God. And we thank you for that blessing. And we pray that you would continue to remind us of who we are in you, those who have been set free so that we might continue to live lives of righteousness. Protect us, O Lord, from the sin of partiality. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be salt and light in this present evil age, even as we go about our daily lives this week. And we ask this in your name. Amen.